Alright, let's jump into the psalm. So you have a very abbreviated um, notes page today, and then you have a couple of handouts. So what our agenda, Lord willing, looks like is we are going to look at your one-page notes handout, and we're going to start going through that. The other two pages, the one on Psalm 19, that'll be for last. So that'll be the second portion of our time together. The one that says Psalms of Praise, we're actually going to hit that pretty soon as part of our intro material. So what I want to do is take us through a little bit of an understanding of, of the Psalms. As you can see from the one-page notes handout, title, authors, the structure, etc. And then for the second portion, if, if our time works out okay, we're going to look at some specific psalms. We'll also look at some as part of this. We're going to look at Psalm 1, for instance, and 2, probably, just as, as part of our intro part as well. So that's kind of the game plan. So let me just ask you a couple uh, questions here, see if you know the answers. Which psalm's the longest? Okay, good. What's the shortest? 17. Good. Who wrote most of them? Okay. Which one starts with the Lord is my shepherd? David. All right. And how many are there? Okay, everybody go home. We're done. All right. Yeah, those are pretty easy, right? So the Psalms are, you know, a lot of people's favorite. Um, I'm not really there yet, but, you know, I still like my Genesis. But people in, in suffering really gravitate to the Psalms. They always have. And they're a comfort for people. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, why that is today. The Psalms timeline, as far as, like, where do they kind of fit in? We need to understand that since David wrote a large portion of these, um, like 73 or so, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he is, is king during this time period right here. So thousands, late 900s BC. So if he's writing them, then that's got to be when some of them are written, right? And so that's kind of the time period that we're talking about. <clears throat> David, of course, is uh, the middle of, of the three kings of the United Kingdom, Saul, uh, David, and then Solomon before the kingdom splits. So the rest of them, obviously, um, we can talk about when. what um, That could be when we get to the author portion. But a large chunk of them are written then. The Psalms are praises. And so I want to take just a minute, and you have an entire handout related to it. Uh, you can put on, on the title of your, your handout, where it says Roman number one title, it's, it's praises. And then I'm going to go to the handout that I actually gave you. So, that is the title of the whole book of Psalms. <coughs> Tehillim, Hebrew, praises. So the book is a book of praises. Um, though there, there are more laments or complaints than praises, even the laments move towards or end in praise. And we're going to talk about that in, in just a few uh, moments as well. Laments do dominate the first three books. You're like, what do you mean by first three books? I'll get to that in just a minute. Um, but praises dominate the last two. Westerman, in his book, Praise and Lament in the Psalms, says, The praise of God in Israel never became a cultic happening, separated from the rest of existence in a separate realm that had become independent of the history of the people and of the individual. Rather, it occupied a central place in the total life of the individual and the people before God. So what he's saying is, this is all wrapped up 
your life. It's not some separate thing you just go to church and do. This was life. And that's our big challenge, in my opinion, for the 21st century, that our Christianity, our faith, is our life. It's not some portion of our life. It's our life. That's one of the reasons that we don't understand, or American culture doesn't understand, people from um, other faiths and how um, they live their life. Because in much of the rest of the world, especially the East, uh, the faith, the, you know, religious uh, beliefs is completely connected to the religious practices of other people's faith. That's how you live your life. Everything is connected to it. We've gotten uh, very secular, if you will, and disconnected with religion, okay? And that's not the kind of faith that we see in the scripture. Praise is the offering of the whole self to God. It involves who we are and what we do at every moment. It is a mode of existence. So there's no real full existence that does not in some way honor, admire, look up to something. So this gets into a whole other topic of biblical idea of idolatry. So you're praising something. Everybody is praising something. Maybe on Sunday it's going to be some football team. I don't know. But you're praising something or someone. And whatever you're praising, if it's not most God, then the Bible calls it an idol. And so that's what we're talking about here. Everybody's praising. Everybody's worshiping. To praise God is to live, and to live is to praise God. Praise has everything to do with both God and man's identity. Those open to God's instruction, Psalm 1, we'll see in a minute, and acknowledging God's reign, Psalm 2, we'll see that in a minute, you praise him. In Psalm 117, all right, we may come back to this later, but let's just look at this. It's very short. He says, praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all you peoples. For great is his faithful love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. What does he want us to do? Praise the Lord. He wants us to praise the Lord. Psalm 150, which ends the, the Psalter. Anytime you see the word Psalter, that just means the whole 150 books. It concludes with a crescendo of praise. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord, praise the Lord. So praising God is the goal of every living thing, the goal of all of creation. That fits in with the rest of the Bible, the biblical story, biblical theology. fits in with what God wants all, all through the storyline that he wants people to know him. And why does he want them to know him? Because that means they have a relationship with him. And if you have a relationship with him, then you're praising him. Or you're giving your to him. So that's the goal of the scriptures. We may come back to, to this page on Psalm 119. There's a few additional notes on here when we get to uh, praise psalms. But I wanted to include that as part of my introduction as, as to what we're, we're talking about. If we jump right into uh, Psalm 1, he says, this is the Holman translation, he says, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And so, in Psalm 1, we are exhorted, okay, <clears throat> we are exhorted to live a life that follows after and pursues God. A life in which God has our back, in a sense. Because he's watching out for us. Because we are his own. That's what Psalm 1 
I can go ahead and produce. We'll come back to Psalm 1 in a little bit as well. <coughs> so that's how the whole book of Psalms, the Psalter, opens up. If we look further, <coughs> you don't have this as a handout in front of you, but I believe I uploaded this last night, so I think this document is on the internet. Um, images of God in the Psalms. So the Psalms, because they're part of poetry, all right, are going to have a lot of metaphor, simile, hyperbolic language, etc. So images of God, you've got God as a shield, a rock, he's a king, a shepherd, a judge, he's a refuge, fortress, avenger, creator, deliverer, healer, protector, provider, redeemer. All these different aspects are mentioned throughout the scriptures. Then you've also got a whole other category dealing with the uh, Messiah in the Psalms. Now, this becomes a, a hermeneutical uh, issue as well. So there will be a scholarly debate over some of the Psalms as to whether or not, when they were originally penned, that the author was thinking of a Messiah or not. And so then you get into trying to figure out, A, were they thinking of the Messiah when they wrote it? B, um, is there a double meaning in it? So that's a whole other hermeneutical issue. Um, so can you have a double meaning in a text, or is there only a single meaning of a text? Uh, and that carries over to the idea of whether you can have uh, partial fulfillment in, in prophecies and whether some of the Psalms are prophetic. So we're not going to unpack all that right this second. Uh, I'm just throwing all that out there to you. So these Psalms, though, demonstrate different aspects of the Messiah and are frequently uh, suggested that they are fulfilled over here in the New Testament by passages that are listed. I think that is also um, on the website for you. I think those are both actually on the same document in the top half and the bottom half of the page. Okay. <clears throat> As we go through our material today, I do want to give credit where credit is due. So um, I, I do use a lot of uh, Dr. Derushi's um, material from both his Old Testament survey book and also from other teaching, lecture notes, and um, PowerPoint slides that he has created and graciously made available. And also, um, Doug Stewart, uh, author of How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth and How to Read the Bible Book by Book. Um, both of those are excellent references. And so, as I've mentioned before, OT Survey... Um, well, all of the classes we take pretty much are Bible college. There's dozens and dozens of, of books you can pick up that are going to have the same information. The only difference is going to be the uniqueness of whoever's presenting it and the, the focus point they have. So, um, with that being said, let's move on to the Psalms and their titles, who they are attributed to. So, this will be Roman numeral uh, number two on your notes handout. So as you can see from the slide on the screen that you have Ethan, Moses, Solomon, the sons of Korah, Asaph, Anonymous, and David listed as your, I believe, seven, three, six, seven, yes. So you can put them in the order they are on the screen or any other order you want. They're listed here, it looks like, from uh, least to greatest. So at the bottom, I had mentioned 73 earlier. That's, that's correct. 73 times um, a psalm is attributed to David. 48 of them are 
not this this claw with an offer with no title or description instead. Now, with, with information like this, let me just make a comment on my general expectations. So, I am very, very unlikely uh, to ask you to remember Ethan the Ezraite on an exam. He has one attributed to him. Okay? I am much more likely to ask you who wrote a majority of them. And that would be who? David. David. Okay? Um, I also could ask you, you know, who wrote, you know, s s some others, you know. Asaph wrote, you know, 12 of them. So <coughs> that's a significant um, number. And um, Psalm number 73 by him has always really stuck out in, in my mind as uh, a psalm that has a lot of relevance because he goes in and he's basically saying, basically a, why do the, the wicked prosper? You know, why is my angel's neighbor got this Ferrari and this half million dollar house and this and this and this and I can't pay my bills and I'm trying to serve you? Like, that's what's going on in Psalm 73. Um, and then in the middle of it, the turning point is, and then he went to the temple. Then he went and met with God. Okay, well, you don't go to a temple, right? You, just, you can go meet with God, right? And then you realize, yeah, he had all this stuff, but he's going to have a judgment day. And that's on his tenth day. Psalm 73 has always stuck out in my mind once I begin to grasp that aspect. Um, not going to say I always live it. I'm just going to say it sticks out of my mind. So that is one of the psalms that sticks out. Um, what does the rest of <coughs> the Bible have to say about the psalms and uh, their authors? Well, in Mark 12, 36, it says, David himself says by the Holy Spirit, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, that might be a little bit confusing. Psalm 110, it's listed several times. It's been messing in the context. But we only have one point that we want to make here. In the inspired New Testament, they're saying that who wrote inspired psalms? Well, David, by the Holy Spirit, right? So what the New Testament authors, inspired by God, are saying is that David, inspired by God, wrote these psalms. So, they're inspired. Acts 4, 24-25. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, da 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 And again, we have, <coughs> why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? So, a quote out of the psalms. So, twice we have passages that indicate that David authored more than half of the Psalms, well, almost half. Um, is attributed as the author and they are inspired in the New Testament. So, all right. Um, in Logos Bible software, they have something called the Psalms Explorer. Um, they have one for Proverbs too, and it'll categorize things for you. And so, uh, this is kind of cool to, to look at. Uh, you'll understand the color coding after a little bit when we look at some others, but that's related to <coughs> genre. But they have them all listed here in uh, subcategories.
so you can quickly um, see all these authors and the different uh, types that they wrote. And after I show you what the color codes mean, you'll understand that better. But does anybody use bar graph or avocado? No? Does DCF still require that for the Herman Reynolds course? I didn't need to get it. You didn't need to get it? Yeah, I took it last semester. I didn't need it this semester. Oh. Okay. I thought that it was a couple years ago, but maybe not. Alright, so let's move on then to the structure of the Psalms. Alright, now we're going to spend a little bit of time on this. Here's a chart that covers uh, a fair amount of it, but we're going to look at it from a couple different angles, and I have several other charts or slides that I'll look at after. First thing I want you to understand is that there are five parts to the book of Psalms. Five books, I think they're called. So the 150 Psalms are divided into five parts. So you have book one through five listed on your your handout, uh, the structure is, is five books, and then you can you can either get it from this slide, or I'll have it up here multiple times, but it tells you at the top which chapters go in, in which book. And there's a reason for that, and it's, it's structured for a, a particular purpose. If you remember in um, probably our, our first class together, uh, we talked a little bit about the canon, and Paul Housen in his book, which is our textbook, talks about how the canon is, is orchestrated or organized, and even though we're not exactly keeping in the canonical order uh, for what we're doing, because we've got the, the law, the prophets, and the writings, right, in the Hebrew uh, canon. So the way things were organized was for a theological and historical reason, and the same thing is argued with the book of Psalms. That they're not willy-nilly where they are, but Psalm 3 is where it is for a reason. And Psalm 25 is, is, is where it is for a reason. And so that's what this is about, and we're going to look at that in a little more detail in a minute. Um, I also want you to notice that if you look at the closing doxology uh, line here, that in between each book um, is uh, kind of a hymn. It's closure to one section. And, and the beginning of the next section. And again, I, I don't think that's accidental. That goes to my SPSU principle. Like I don't think these things just happenstance when you get there. I think they're arranged that way, and they're arranged that way for a reason, the same way that you write a book with chapters and, and whatever else. So um, in this particular chart, they then li liken the five books to the Torah, which I have seen um, repeatedly in a lot of different things that I've read over the years as well. So there is the, the main parts that I want you to get is you can see that it starts off with David writing and ends with David and some anonymous. You have the chapter numbers up here for books one through five. Then it's easy to know, you know, the Pentateuch or the Torah connection because it's going order. The closing doxology not that I'm probably going to ask you what chapter it is, but I want you to understand that the break is where those doxologies, those praises to God at the end of the section comes from. Um, and that's, that's pretty good. So on our notes, there's a Roman numeral construction five books. Yes. And there 
everything else I said goes under the those one, two, three, four, five. So if you didn't get it all from this slide, most of it will be on several additional slides that I'm going to keep putting up. So um, the Rishi that I keep referring to has a chart also, and this is the one that I'll, I'll probably keep putting up here. So here, here's the five books, and then he has them laid out similarly, but a little different. So an intro, a conclusion, and a body. Now, Psalm 1 and 2, of course, I already read Psalm 1, and I've alluded to Psalm 1 and 2 in the Psalms of Praise handout that we looked at a minute ago. Psalm 1 and 2 are <coughs> intros to the whole book, right? If you looked at Yeah, the second to last bullet point before Psalm 117, it says, those open to God's instruction, that's Psalm 1, about the two ways to live, and acknowledge God's reign, Psalm 2. So Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are this intro to the whole book. <coughs> the way he lists it is walking with the Messiah and waiting in the Messiah. <laughs> Talking about God's Psalm 2 and his his reign to come as sovereign king. So, are we all good so far? I may have to take a break earlier than normal because I can put other water in this water. Um, so, the next slide <coughs> demonstrates the idea of laments and praises. Now, we're going to spend some time looking at how a lament is structured in a little while. But one of the things that he has noticed, and, and this is one of those things that, that I find to be cool, because it helps me understand, again, I call it my SPSU principle, but it helps me understand how things are arranged and they're not just willy-nilly. That when you look at the Psalms, you can see how they start out with a lot of laments. Okay? And what do they do? They taper off. And what do the praises do? They increase or crescendo. Which, as I mentioned earlier, it's like Psalm 150, the last psalm, which is this huge, massive crescendo of praises to God. And keep in mind also, what we had mentioned on the previous chart, is they kind of trace or mirror Israel's history up to that point. So if you can kind of clue in on uh, the time period of David as king, right? And then think of the Psalms as written in that time period. And the psalmists, as they write, are covering, starting in book one, from the beginning of even like Israel's history and maybe some creation stuff, all the way up to where they're at with David reigning and whatnot, and then looking forward to the Messiah's coming. Does that make sense? So they're not just individual. There are individual psalms, but they're not just individual psalms. Right? <coughs> um, let me make a note on the, the superscriptions. Okay? So you don't have 
uh, this is not one of your Roman numerals or anything, but so the superscription, and this is quite a strong one. That is is the things that you see in your Bible, usually above verse one. Okay, so like Psalm three says, a Psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. Okay, now I'm not talking about the titles that are added in, like the Psalm three of mine says, confidence in troubled times. Well, that's that's somebody added in. This is what the psalm is kind of about to help you understand. But a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. That part's actually in the text, like the Hebrew text. Alright? But it's not part of the verse numbers. So, <clears throat> that is to give information and instruction. So, some of them, there's, there's a bunch, but like Psalm 3, and that's like that, 7, 30, 34, etc. So, they generally have three parts. They often talk about the character of, of that psalm, whether it's going to be a psalm or a song or instruction or a prayer. Um, there's often a note of authorship in them, and then maybe the occasion, so why it was there. And so what do you find here in this one? You find the three parts we just said. A psalm of David, when he fled from his son Absalom. So you've got the historical and fleeing from Absalom, you've got the author David, and you've got a, a psalm, which is the, the character. Sometimes they'll say a song instead of a, a psalm. So psalm, remember, is the word phrase, right? So it's a phrase. So that's the superscription, okay? There's those, and then there's, there's additional uh, titles that are characteristic or different, like, musical aspects sometimes. So the word mizmor, okay? I'll write it here, M-I-Z-M-O-R. Or a psalm. This means a song rendered to the accompaniment of instrumental music. So 57 psalms are labeled like that. Okay? Including the one I just said, Psalm 3. That's what it says, like psalm, right? So the Hebrew word is mizmor. Alright? Some have the word song in English or in, in Hebrew, it's shir. S-H-I-R. An example for that one would be Psalm 30. 88 and 120 are two additional. This is a term for vocal music. So 27 psalms have this. The third one is a contemplative poem. And the word is maskil. the word comes uh, from means to ponder or to give attention or consider. There's 13 psalms that are designated this, including Psalm 32. There's six that have the word miktam. M-I-K-T-A-M. That which is hidden away in treasures that which is precious. Six of them, including Psalm 16. The next one is a prayer. And the Hebrew word is tefillah, uh, or prayer. And there's five, including Psalm 86 and 90. 
again, I'm not going to ask you every one of these on the exam. Okay? Hopefully some of the material that we cover is reference material for you. Just when you're studying it on your own somewhere. Uh, the next one, uh, the sixth one, is a song of praise, and it's Tehillah. Five psalms have this, including Psalm 145. And then there are um, what is, I don't have the Hebrew word for it, it's, it's the songs of, um, they're mostly the songs of ascent or songs of degrees. The most common view is that they were sung by the pilgrims going up to Jerusalem. There's 15 of these, uh, one, chapters 120 to 134. 120 to 134. Ten are anonymous, four are by David, one's by Solomon. So, so those are all um, different titles which are descriptive of the character of the psalm. Okay? Just helps you understand a little bit about Again, that's mostly for your reference. All right, let's continue with looking at the Psalms and their structure. Okay, so the five doxologies that we mentioned earlier that was on the chart. The first um, chart that we looked at had listed the verses, and here's what they are for you. Okay, so at the end of book one, it says, "Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, Amen and Amen." So he's concluding it all out, saying, "Praise be to God, blessed be God." At the end of book two, he says, "Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory, Amen and Amen." At the end of book three, Psalm eighty-nine, verse fifty-two, "Blessed be Yahweh forever, Amen, Amen." Psalm 106, 48, blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise Yahweh. And then Psalm 146, chapter 150, at the end of that, praise God, praise Yahweh. So you can see, not only is there some kind of doxology, but they're very, very similar in each case. And so this is how they end up at the determination, as they're studying all these things in Hebrew, of course, not English. So they're studying the, the way they're arranged. They're analyzing each of the psalms. They're analyzing the historical context for the psalms. And then they're seeing how they flow over the whole history of Israel. And then they see these markers and see how they separate them out. Like that's kind of how it all works. Simplified in a nutshell.
So the whole thing <coughs> is is framed by this introduction, all right, that we talked about. The walking and waiting, as uh, Dershowitz labels it. And then the conclusion, Psalms 146 to 150, that address the themes of wisdom, eschatology, and, pr and praise. Okay, so wisdom, that's how we started this whole unit, right? Job was uh, one part of wisdom. Psalms have this other aspect of the two ways to live your life. And so it highlights God's supremacy and his majesty. <coughs> and as you meditate on the Psalms, you're left with the choice of how you're going to live your life. And that's what Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are dealing with. So let's look back at Psalm 1 and then at Psalm 2. So it's on the screen. The, the different notations that you see, the, the colors or whatnot, the A's and the B's, is because this is uh, from Lawn Bible Software again, and I have turned on the parallelism and the structure. So they're simply lining up the different types of parallel thought. So if you remember, the, what were the three main parallel types? first one is synonymous parallelism. The second line does what? Yes. Okay. The second is empathetic. The second line. Okay. And the third one is uh, synthetic. And the second line. Yes. Okay. Good job. All right. The other one is uh, chiasm or chiastic structure. And that's the one, if you were here with my previous class, that's the one we looked at. Um, with uh, what was it? With Noah's flood, and it looks like this. Where the marker is, it doesn't work. That's the ABC thing, and then it goes back out with the A prime B prime. Or we looked at it comes from the the Greek chi letter X and how they invert. Okay, so there's this structure where they're they're building things up and then they're backing off from it, and it's all based around the turning point. <coughs> so, the reason you need to know those is because when you're reading a psalm, and it's the same thing when you get to Proverbs, it was also true in Job, um, this would be huge though in, in Proverbs, and it's also really big in psalms, is a lot of times we don't know what they're saying. Like, we're like, I don't, I don't know what that means. But if you look at the next line or the line before it, it's some kind of parallel thought. So you can you can tell from the context probably if it's opposite or not, and either rule that one out or choose that, right? Empathetic. And so then the, the parallel lines help you figure out what the other line means, even though I know what it means. A lot of times people make additional or I want to say they make an additional point that's not even in the text, because it's just repeating itself. The Bible's extremely repetitious. Like if you haven't noticed extremely repetitious. In fact, you really could summarize it all into just a couple of sentences and the whole thing is just a constant recycle of the same thing over and over and over and over again. Just like the book of Judges is, right? They do the same thing, right? All the cycles, they just keep doing the same thing. Same thing. The Bible is really the same way. So, in Psalm 1, okay? So, Psalm 1, the very first Psalm, alright? There's, there's no title for Psalm 1 or Psalm 2. They have a theme of, of blessing in both of them. If you look at the 
the first verse. Uh, Holman says how happy. Some of the uh, newer translations say how happy, but the traditional uh, passage is just how blessed is, is the man. I think this is either NIV or ESV on the screen. So blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So these are, these are three things he does not do. But, okay, so, um, but gives us a contrast, so, antithesis, but his delight instead is in the law of the Lord, right? So his delight is about God and what God wants, the ways of God. And so he is not sitting around all day uh, plotting and planning with people who are not in line with what God wants to do in the world, okay? That, that's what this person is, the blessed person. Instead, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in the season, and its leaf doesn't wither, and all that he does prosper. Well, who makes it to prosper? God makes it prosper. In its season, it prospers. But when does it? I don't know yet. Job had to wait, right? You have to wait. I have to wait. In its season, Abraham had to wait 25 years. So, the, therefore, the wicked, verse 5, will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Um, <clears throat> for the Lord knows, verse 6, the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, this is something called ellipsis. Anybody know what that means? Ellipsis is when they leave something out. Like on purpose. You do it all the time. Okay? Otherwise, we repeat ourselves way more than we already repeat ourselves. When he says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, forget will perishes there. What is implied? That he what? He doesn't know it. Because of but. Okay? So the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, they're going to perish. Why? Because the Lord doesn't know their way. Because they don't know the Lord. Because the Lord don't know them. Are you, are you following me on this? So... They, they leave off that part, but it's implied, all right? <clears throat> the reason that one perishes and one doesn't is because of their relationship. It's all relationship-based. Because literally, God's got their back. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, okay? He's their protection. He's, if you go back to the... The slide I had up there with all the metaphors of God. He's their shield. He's their protector. He's their refuge. He's all those things. That's why they don't perish. It's not because of their good works. It's, it's not because they're so awesome. It's not because they have self-righteousness. No, it's because of God. It's because God has them. So, which is why Garuchi uh, translates this as walking with the Messiah. <coughs> walking with God, which reminds me of Enoch in chapter 5 of Genesis, he walked with God. Some of remind of Genesis 1, where, where depending on how they translate it or their interpretation, they know that God's walking with the man in the garden, etc. So, the psalmist motivates the individual to pursue a life rooted in God's word by contrasting the blessed state of the righteous with the unblessed state of the wicked. Dependence on Yahweh by meditating on and heeding the direction of his law will bring the sustained satisfaction that everybody's looking for because it's looking all the wrong places. So, the blessed or satisfied satisfied state of the righteous. <clears throat> the catchwords for both Psalm 1, that I already read, and Psalm 2, I'll read it now, 
are blessed, way, sit, meditate, plot, and perish. Okay? Listen to him as I read it from Psalm 2. And why do the nations rebel and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let us tear off their chains and free ourselves from their restraints. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord will destroy them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have consecrated my king on Zion and my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion. For his anger may ignite at any moment all those who take refuge in him are happy. Anywhere where I said the word happy, you're stuck to be blessed or all the other major translations tell us that's true. <laughs> so, these catchwords, blessed way, sit, meditate, and plot, and perish. So together, they appear to provide the voice of the king as a representative of, of the people. So, Psalm 1 is about two ways. Okay, so the way the whole thing is set up is, listen, there's two ways to pray. Pick your way. Alright? Joshua, when he talks to the people, what does he say? If that's me and my, me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord, right? But he didn't give them a choice. He said, if that's not what you want to do, then do what? Don't fake it. He said, go serve your gods. But don't pretend that you're serving Yahweh, right? So choose which way. This is a theme since all of the wisdom literature and all through the scriptures. There are two ways. Alright? A lot of commentaries will actually title this two ways for Psalm 1. So Psalm 2 then is about God being king. God being the sovereign king of the universe. So if you're going to pick your way from Psalm 1, make it the way of God because he is the sovereign ruler and all the nations are going to give account to him. What does he say about the nations and all of their plotting? He laughs. Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, he ridicules them. Why? He gives all of this plotting and planning to attack or overthrow or, or rebel against me is going to amount to what? Nothing. Nothing. And that's the problem with our short-term vision and eyesight. You know, we, we see these things and we're like, oh, you know, over this 20-year time period, things have done this or that. And then you hear crime stats. Oh, crime went down or crime went up in the last year or five or ten years. Okay, look at the trend. Like, forget one year. If it, not, if it went down in a year, I'm glad. All right, but, like, look at the bigger picture. How's it been going for 25 years, 50 years, 100 years? You know what I'm saying? <coughs> Are we actually getting to be more like heaven? Or the opposite? So that's Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Um, you, could, you could structure it. Um, around the theme of motivating us, this is what I just said, to pursue a life rooted in God's word, okay? That's what he's, he's trying to do. He's contrasting the two. But you could outline it this way. This is Jerusalem again. His pattern of life is not associated with rebellion. His pleasure in life is God's law. His placement of life is nourishing. His produce in life is plentiful and permanent. The unblessed save the wicked in verse 4 to 6. The basis of the wicked people's dismal future and the nature of the wicked people's dismal future. No, it's not the only way. I have all sorts of others. When I was in seminary, you know, we had the I was fine with this kid in Psalm one. We had to analyze and parse every single word of it, make our own translation, our own commentary, etc. Um, but it really does boil down to 
what you said right there, it's very simple, and it really boils down to the two ways. Each of the two ways. <coughs> so, where do you find your delight? Is it in God? Is it in Him, Psalm number two, as your king? Or is it somewhere else? So Psalm 2, that was the theology that we just talked about there. The outline for Psalm 2 is the basis of the call to the blessed state of refuge in God's royal son. So the futility, the pointlessness of your rebellion, okay? And the certainty of submission, you're going to submit. It's just a matter of now or later, right? Uh, the nature of the call to the blessed state of refuge in God's royal son. Now, the call to take it in God's Son is declared in verse 12, and the blessed state of taking refuge in God's royal Son is asserted and also in verse number 12. So, what's the implication? Because the only commands relate to finding refuge in the Son, the clearest way we do this is through submitting to God's Word, which is what guides the king. So, what did God say in Deuteronomy the king is supposed to do? When the king takes the throne, listen to what he's supposed to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book of, a copy of his law approved by the Levitical priests. So the priests who have the care of the scrolls, the Torah, etc., are supposed to supervise while the king, okay, every king, is supposed to copy for himself the law. And then, what you're supposed to do is you're going to meditate, of course. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of the law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, so it brings humility, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, he'll obey God, to the right or the left, so he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay? Tied to God's promise made to Abraham, David, and others. <coughs> of course, this is written before the promise to David. So, um, if anybody's ever asked you, um, why do I read even read the Bible? Well, God instructed the kings to copy it and meditate on it every day. Um, and, and we're now children of the king. So doesn't it fit that um, if they were supposed to know what we should know so that we can live our, our life properly? So that's that. That's just a visual of, uh, of the chapter one. Alright, I want to take a couple more minutes and I want to go through a contrast between the blessed and um, the wicked. Alright, you picked it up first from our Psalm 1. Okay, person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit season and its leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, not so the wicked. Alright, so that's NIV Psalm 1 about the, the blessed. The, the wicked though they will not stand in the judgment. Okay, what does that mean, not stand in the judgment? It means they're not going to last. They're, they're not going to make it through the judgment because they're going to be judged and discarded, right? Kicked out. Um, because the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. <coughs> the other translation I read earlier was probably ESV. So, that person is like a tree planted by the streams of water, as, as we read. Um... It bears its fruit, and the Lord watches over. So this is this is the blessing aspect. Compare the first word and the last word. Should be a space there um, of the psalm. <coughs> and sorry, that's not on the screen. So the first word and the last word. What are they? Yes. So the first word is blessed. The last word is perish, or in the moment, happy and true. 
So that's your, that's your choices. That's the contrast being set up. In Psalm 40, <coughs> this is additional material outside of Psalm 1 and 2 that deal with the blessing and the wicked. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord. So what does it mean to be blessed? Or who is part of the, the blessed crowd? It's the ones that are trusting in the Lord. They don't look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. Okay? So, reminds me also of Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, right? So, who do you trust? Who do you acknowledge in all your ways? Who are you relying upon? Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts. We are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. So, God brings us to himself. God gives us good things. James says every good thing comes down from the Father of heaven, the Father of lights from above. All right? Psalm 84, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They're ever praising you. It's a little bit convicting. Am I ever praising God? Um, blessed are those whose strength is in you. It, is that really where I'm getting my strength from? See, wh when we read these, so the, the Psalms are uh, convicting. If you re read the theology underneath or in between the words. <coughs> whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Well, pilgrimage to where? This would be... Old Testament Israelite context, right? And so they're going to make a pilgrimage to what city? Jerusalem, right? Which is where you get the, the psalms or songs of ascent. They would sing them is what we think as they would ascend up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on a hill. So no matter where you're coming from, you're going to ascend to Jerusalem. Okay? Psalm 106.3. Blessed are those who act justly, who always do what is right. So this this state that God wants you in is in a blessed state. A blessed state being a position in which you are you are able to be um, a conduit of blessing to the rest of the world. So if you're if you're not in a place uh, of blessing, it means you can't help other people, right? Why does that bless us? To be a blessing, right? Bless us so we bless others. Why was Abraham blessed. He's blessed so that through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. So Abraham is the conduit. Abraham is the pipeline through which it's supposed to come. Okay? You clog the pipeline and you stop the flow, right? So, but New Testament now, who's the pipeline? The church is the pipeline. You and I are the pipeline. So it's through us. So we need to be in a position of, of blessedness, okay? Not so I'm rich, like with money, but so that I'm rich in God, so that through me, others can be made rich in Christ. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Okay, again, who helps me when I need it? Oh, I call my buddy. Okay. Who splits their help? Whose hope? Why do, why do people <coughs> go into depression, despondency, and, and, and suicide? They, they lose hope, right? Because their eyes are off of Christ, right? <coughs> in his pride, the wicked man, so we've just switched gears, right? So now it's the wicked. So in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. Doesn't seek who? God. Because he's arrogant. Because he thinks he's self-sufficient. Because he thinks that he doesn't need assistance or help. Think about the things that we said about the the blessed person. They they know they need help. They go to God. They they need hope, so they go to God. So 
so when you're depressed, when I'm depressed, what, what, what do we hope in? We hope, we hope in Christ, that he's actually coming back. And he's coming back because he said he would, and, and he does what he says he would because we know that says he rose from the dead, right? So the arrogant, the prideful, they don't seek God. In all their thoughts, there's no room for God. They think about everything but God. No room for God. They close their mouth. They cover him up, Romans 1, right? 18 and 21. They all know there's a God, but what do they do? They suppress the truth. But to the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my law or take my covenant on your lips? Well, they can't be part of the covenant because they what? They don't have a relationship with God. <coughs> and the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to impurity. Right. Okay, you want part of that? So this is this is for the, the wicked, alright, that he is going to judge them. So this reminds us back of Psalm 2, right? The nations are planning all these things, but actually what they're going to do is bring God's judgment. The Lord is a God who avenges. O God, who avenges, shine forth, rise up, judge of the earth, pay back to the proud what they deserve. How long, Lord, will the wicked, how long will the wicked be jubilant? Okay, so this is reminding us, oh, here they go. They pour out arrogant words. All the evildoers are full of boasting. They crush your people, Lord. They oppress your inheritance. They slay the widow and the foreigner. They murder the fatherless. They say, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob takes no notice. Okay, so, so this deals with the wickedness in the world. And, and why is it not ending? This is some of the stuff that Asaph is seeing in, in Psalm uh, 72. Until he gets the bigger picture and realizes that there's an eternal aspect. That there is a judgment, etc. And, and we get bogged down in the same thing. Psalm 119, 165, salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek out your decree. So you see that the, the Psalms are, people say that, God's people have said this, the Psalms are filled with misery. Oh, here we go. <laughs> the Psalms are filled with um, pleas and cries to God, but it's the heart of the people God's people who are following. <coughs> Alright. So, this is from Logos Bible Software again. So, this here is the various genres or types of songs. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a different list for some to use. So they they list uh, seven right there. Alright. So we are going to look at, I think, ten of them this morning. And if you study out the Psalms and you look at the different types, what, what you're going to find is that there is some discussion or debate um, about how many types there are, which if this one is a, of a thanksgiving type or if it's of a praise type, etc. So um, I, I don't want to make it overly complicated. I want you to understand the main aspects, and uh, sometimes you might be confused about which it is, but I think most of the time you'll, you'll be okay if you get the main ones that we're going to talk about. So let me go back for a minute so I can explain one other thing. So these colors okay, are related to the genres. So all those other slides that I sh showed, I think there's only one, but there's going to be a, a bunch more coming. These colors are, are the... Uh, Thanksgiving, the wisdom of the royal, they're the, the genre. So when you see this slide, okay, so this is divided up by the books, right? So book one, two, three, four, five. So book one, which color is most prominent? 
blue, okay? So you don't remember, so I'll go back. Blue will come in. Alright, well, remember that chart? Where are the majority of the alumni? They're in the beginning, right? So, Psalm 1, or Book 1, has a lot of women. You look back at uh, this one, so if that's the case, we should see, as we go around the circle from Book 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, we should see less and less blue. Right? And do we? We do, right? Less and less blue. Alright, what do we see more and more of? What gets, what gets more? What color is the red does, right? So what do you think red is, Dan? Yeah, I would imagine it's got to be, right? So, bingo. It's appraisal. Now, notice also, now again, your numbers are going to vary based on exactly how they categorize it, okay? But, look at this. Okay, so what category has the most? Lament. But, what's pretty close? Praises is, right? So, there is more lament poems. And, understand... Lament gets the points because the whole psalm is categorized as a lament. But ju as you'll see in a few minutes, even the laments have guess what in them? Yeah. Of course, there's praises in them. In fact, that's normally how they end. Alright? So, if you added up all of that, you would see that as a whole, it's way more filled with praise. So, <laughs> so that's the five books, and that's the different um, types. And you can, I can, you know, do these individually, I can, you can do all sorts of ones, but you don't need to do all those, I'll just flip through them. Okay? <coughs> so, this slide here shows the different types, wisdom, royal, lament, praises, thanksgiving, and, and hymns, and so you can quickly, um, what this allows you to do is say, you can say, uh, I want a praise song. Uh, which ones are those? So, boom, you hit praise, and there they are, right? Or hymns, etc. By the book section, or however you want. So that's kind of all of them uh, categorized for you right there. All seven of the types that they have. <coughs> the next one. Let's see what my next one says. Um, one of these has um, acrostics in them. So let me let me show you that one. Acrostic right there. I thought it was there. No, okay. What time is it? Sorry. Alright. So, the acrostics, do you remember what the acrostics are? Yes, it is. Okay? So, I want to click all the way through them again. So, the acrostics are the ones where they go through the alphabet. Okay? Maybe I have a slide in here later. I thought it was right there with those as well. But, um, Psalm 119 is, is the most famous one. It goes all the way through the alphabet there. So, let's break down these psalms and look at the, the different types and how they're, they're structured. Okay? So, we're going to look at laments first, I think. A lament is simply a cry for help. All right? So when you think of a lament, just, just got to think of a cry for help. And this on the back, I'm going to copy it the wrong way, sorry. But um, look at this, down to the type. All right, so it's just a big blank space to write on. 
Um, but Thanksgiving is a gratitude for deliverance and praise is a celebration for who God is and what he has done. So lament is a cry for help. It's either a complaint or um, a fall in the pit and I need you to help me out or my life is really, really bad and it's just out of control and I need you to help me. I'm going to throw in something else that I want you to write down related to these laments. And this is from um, Doug Stewart. And so it's probably in his, his book. But he talks about these laments. And he talks about the things that lead us to lamenting or complaining. So there's four main things. So he's gone through the Psalms and he's, he's looked at what are the things that people are complaining about or petitioning God about? Like, what is it that's overwhelming their life? <coughs> and he talks about <coughs> these four things. The first one is enemies are about to overcome them. That's the most common. Okay? They're overwhelmed by their enemies. Their enemies are overtaking them. The second one is they're facing death. The third one is some kind of confinement or entrapment. Maybe it's a pit, maybe it's whatever. And the fourth one is some kind of drowning situation. So they're drowning. stereotyped or standardized. And what he means is that they can stand for all sorts of things that are that are happening. And so the language he, he says is used is often metaphor or hyperbolic and it can encompass any type of thing. Which in his opinion is, is why the Psalms are so universally applicable. Like no one in the Psalms Typical language, it's become a standard, a stereotype, okay, that encompasses kind of all that life throws at you. And that's why they're able to be used the, the way they are. So, enemies, for instance, he says, can be a substitute for problems that tend to overcome us and usurp our hope. Now, I want to I wanna temper what he says with, with this one thing, okay? I'm, I'm not disagreeing, I just want to temper it. Um, in light of the fact that it looks like the Psalms are also written to correspond with Israel's history, and that some of them have historical um, superscriptions in the, in the front of them, I don't want to throw out the idea that when David says he's going to be chased by Absalom, that he's really not being chased by Absalom. Does that make sense? Okay? So, at the same time, it doesn't mean 
that there's absolutely no way out ever. You know, because from our human perspective, it does it does look like there's no way out, right? And that is maybe actually what it is until who intervenes. Until God intervenes, which is the whole point of the lament, right? He's calling out to God. And then after God has intervened, then, then he has a thanksgiving or a praise. So does that make sense to you? Okay. So <coughs> the lament. I think the lament is the only one I'm going to do this for. Alright, but I, I'm going to give you two different ones. I'm going to give you Jerusalem and then I'm going to give you Stuart's. Okay? What you find in a lament <coughs> is, um, I guess it's F-trap with his. Alright, that's your acronym. So you find an address to God in the first person. And then you find the petitions, usually for being heard, the trouble described, the reason why God should answer. Assurance declared, and praise or promise or sacrifice. So, the lament psalms, which is the bulk of the psalms, right, are going to follow a similar pattern or structure in this. Now, there's there's six parts to that. Okay, abstract. possible that you could have a lament and they leave one of those parts out. It's possible they just don't mind the part. But generally speaking, they're, they're going to follow this format. Why does this even matter? Well, when you're trying to analyze the psalms, you're probably going to be able to tell what the lament is from. Because there's going to be a, a, a cry for help, a plea, a complaint, right? So you'll probably be able to figure that out. But, as you go through the psalms, and we see that there is a similar process for the, the other types. It will help determine some of these types that we're not so sure of. Okay. Now, Doug Stewart's is, is similar. Um, I actually I learned Doug Stewart's first, and then um, and then I saw this one. <coughs> and normally, when I do that, I try to either conflate them—that means put them together—or uh, figure out which one I think is, is more accurate. But the truth is, uh, Darushi stuff is newer to me, and I have not um, had the time to go analyze which of the two. So, Stewart's is apt daft. All right. Now, there there actually is a little bit of a difference because I have compared them at least that much. He says there's an address to God. That's the same. Okay. Then there's a complaint, the basis for misery. There's a trust in God expressed, a deliverance plea, assurance declared, and praise or promise or sacrifice. There is similarities, but the middle section is slightly different between the two. And maybe you're still right. I'm going to come back to it, so don't get too excited on me. But this one has the petitions, the trouble described, and the reason why God should answer, and the assurance declared. Whereas Stewart's puts them as a little simpler, in my opinion. The complaint, trust in God, deliverance plea, assurance declared. Let me make a note on what he means between trust and assurance. Trust, he argues in the Psalms, is normally related to what God has done in the past. So that's kind of a turning point in, in the Psalm, okay? So 
there's a complaint. Okay, first you address God. Then there's a complaint. He's saying, <clears throat> my life's a mess. I need some help. In the past, you've helped me out. That's the trust in God expressed. So please help me now. That's the deliverance plea. I know you will because you did in the past. That's the assurance. Thank you. You're awesome. That's the prayer. Right? So that's what's going on there. All right? So after that, what was the other one? Trust, yes, uh-huh, yes. So in the trust section, is focusing, yes, on how God has helped in the past. Yep. And the assurance is, is how I'm going to trust now for the future. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, other than those two uh, differences here on the lament psalm, Jerusalem's is pretty much the same as, as Stuart. I think he got it from Stuart, actually. one of the things you'll find. That's why I say, like, I mean, go pick up an ocean survey book and most of what I say is going to be in there. Because either I got it from them or from someone else that said the same thing or I saw it myself. And it's like, I mean, they all say pretty much the same thing, except for the the special area of study that someone has that, that they bring into it, which is why I recommend you read widely. So if they're all about the same, then why would I read 10 of them or why do I own 25 of them? Well, it's because everyone does have their own niche, their own specialty. So I want to know when did they learn this niche that nobody else is talking about? Because I want to know it all. <laughs> Not that I ever will, but anyway. All right, so here's a lament psalm, all right? Now, um, because Jerusha is the one slicing and dicing the psalm, okay, it's going to follow this, all right? We can look at some other ones in a little bit that follow the after that. So it says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. Psalm 6, okay? Address to God. O Lord. That's the address. That's to God, right? O God. Be gracious to me, for I am languishing. Heal me, for my bones are troubled. Petition with a reason. Like, help me out. Here's why. Um, Turn, O Lord. Deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Another petition with a rationale. This time it's because of your... When it says uh, steadfast love, that's most likely the Hebrew word hesed, and it has to do with God's faithful covenant to his people, which goes all the way back to at least Abraham, if not before, and how he's faithful to the promises he made. So he's saying, he's saying because of who you are, that don't, um, well, I almost said don't be, a, don't be a liar. I don't know if I want to be that crass with it, but he's, he's saying because of who you are, stay true to your promises is, is what he's saying um, right there. You see the same thing elsewhere where they say, um, because of your name, he's calling them a name of God. He said, because of who you are, do this. Like they're claiming Yahweh's name for why he should do something. But what they're doing when they, when they do that is the same as this. They're saying, because of your promises, because of your character, because of what you already said, do this. Um, Moses says, when he's taking the people out of Egypt, he says, uh, similarly, he says, for your name's sake, don't kill all the people right now. Otherwise, they'll think, oh, yeah, you freed them from the Egyptians, so they can just parse them in the desert. No. The, the point all through Exodus is for God's name to be known throughout all the nations, so that Psalm 1 and, and 2 is a reality in the blessed aspect. So Moses is like, well, that's not going to happen if you kill us all now, right? So, 
Verse 6, I'm weary of my mourning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. My eye grows weak because of all my foes. This is the struggle described. He's explaining what's going on. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed. That is the assurance declared. So, that's an example of that. Okay, this is Psalms of Thanksgiving. Okay, this is iMart. Doug Stewart does this whole little thing. You know, he talks about, you know, you're going to Kmart and blah, 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 blah. Another way, and you tap this iMart. And you're like, oh, I'll go check there. See if I can. He's just trying to help you remember a way to remember this wasn't the so what we find in a thanksgiving psalm okay there's an introduction of praise there's the misery or the trouble reported so you could change that to a t it could be i part i'm whatever right appeal for others to praise god okay the rescue is announced in a testimony or a vow of praise all right so um he'll say this as well the whole point of this acronym is only for, for one reason. It's a, it's a teaching tool, right? It's, it's some way to help us to remember at least some of this, right? So you can come up with your own. You can come up with some other different thing. You could you know, change these letters instead of testimony. You can put praise, you know, whatever. Whatever is going to kind of help you that, you know, if you are looking at a psalm, you'll be able to say, yeah, I think that's a Thanksgiving psalm because um, – there they are, they're just praising God at the end, but you got the misery reported, there's the appeal for others to praise God, <clears throat> and there's an announcement of the rescue. So what's kind of going on here is, if you look at this idea of an appeal for others to praise God, so we're saying for Thanksgiving, we, we want to be able to lift up the name of God and kind of help make his name famous. That's why others are involved, because if others aren't involved, then it's just us, right? So it's a goal to spread that. Um, is this all pretty good so far? Like, making sense to you guys? Okay, so we'll look at a Thanksgiving example now. So Psalm 30. I will extol you, O Lord. So there's the introduction of praise and it's addressed to God, okay? Why? For you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over you. So the enemies, the foes, all right, have, have, have been attacking and surrounding you. Uh, and God has not let them um, have victory. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. This is an appeal for others to, to praise God. So, <clears throat> notice that it's addressed in here to um, to the saints here. So, the saints need to do this, not just himself. You have turned for me my mourning and dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth. You clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. And so, let's announce this. O Lord, I will give thanks to you forever. Alright? Now, you might see some of these right away, like, oh yeah, it's obvious, like, there's there's the address, like, oh Lord, in caps, we're going to say. Um, and some of these other parts you might not see right away. That's okay. Don't worry about it. Like, that's how everything is written here, right? Um, being exposed to it, <coughs> you, you only get 
good at stuff that you practice, right? Yeah. If we had time, I think we would. But if we had time, we would take them uh, two minutes at the end, and we could go we could look at some psalms, and we could try to figure out the different parts of them. So I, I would see that we could do that later if we spent time. So again, keep in mind the, the movement from lament to praise, what's, what's going on in the book, as we move from book one, two, three, four to five. Right? Um, so the next one is Psalms of uh, Praise, SRS. There's a summons, a reason, and a summons repeated. So this one's pretty easy. SRS, summons, reason, summons. Basically, You'll be able to pick out a praise song because the whole thing is going to be what? Praise, 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 right? And somewhere in the middle is going to be a reason why. And the example we're going to look at is actually a song that we've already looked at. Psalm 117. Let me see if my mate just finished that up. Alright, so Psalm 117. I'm going to use what's on the screen. I'm also going to refer to the, the handout you have that says Psalms of Praise on it. So you have the summons. Praise the Lord, all the nations. Extol him, all the peoples. Let's praise, okay? Reason. Great is his steadfast love, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. And the summons again. Praise the Lord. All right? Now, let me add, for those of you looking at your handout, all right? I have uh, them labeled. It says call to praise instead of summons, but they're synonyms, right? So... Look as if you look in the little box to the right, though, I give some additional information. I, I put the reasons for praising God in Psalm 117, 2 are God's faithful love and his faithfulness. Okay? That's the reason. Verse 2. It says, Great is his faithful love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. These two words are the climax of God's self revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, 6. So how do you know that? Well, you have to go look at Exodus 34, 6 and see uh, what that says. But after the people demonstrate their inevitable sinfulness, God reveals himself as faithful love and faithfulness in Exodus 34, 6. So in recalling God's self-revelation, he reveals himself in Exodus 34. Psalm 117 grounds the reason for praising God in God's fundamental identity. So you praise him because he's God. Because of God's faithful love and faithfulness, he will do nothing but love the world and its sinful inhabitants. So why is he going to love? Because that's who God is. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, right? And, and how do we know that? Because of his actions that he's demonstrated towards us. In fact, John 3, 16 says the same thing. It says that how do we know, uh, know God loves us? Because he gave his what? His only son, right? Exactly. I think that the way, I think the Homer translates that is, um, so this is how God showed us love or something like that, that he gave his only son. So, the relationship with God is the only way to properly exist, the only way to be blessed or happy, and the only way to experience life, okay? So, the, the psalms become a little bit richer when you are able to connect, like, like I did right there with Exodus 34, to 
historical context, some other catchphrase words. Um, so when you're reading through these, I'm like, okay, faithful love. What, what, what's faithful love mean? And then you go look in Scripture and see uh, how that's used elsewhere. Uh, on the back page is Psalm 100 of this same sheet. It says, Shout for joy to the Lord of all the earth. Worship or serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So if you look at the, the box on the right, which is where my comments are. Psalm 100 verse 1, summon all the earth to praise God. Universal in scope. All divisions are removed. It's all inclusive. So, you know, this really informs our theology as Christians. You know, I've mentioned in Abraham and the, the covenant that God makes, and it's supposed to be for all the nations. I've mentioned uh, Exodus. I, I probably keep coming back to these because these are seminal events. These are huge events that depict what God's real plan is. You know, in the Exodus, the repeated phrase, "I'll give you ten plagues," is so that you will know that I am Yahweh. Um, that's the point of the plague. You will know that I am God. And so here, all the earth is to know. We, we get rid of uh, national identities. We get rid of race identities. We, we have what? All the earth. It's all inclusive. And verse 2, he continues the sum of this building and comprehensive life and service to the sovereign Lord. The term servant always occurs in the Psalter. Remember, that's the whole 150 Psalms. In relationship to royal figures, Kings and divine are humans. Kings are served. Psalm 93. So now watch this. This is where the, the psalms build on each other and how they're arranged. In Psalm 93 through 99, had just proclaimed the Lord's kingship. This is Psalm 100. So it's not an accident that he's talking about serving God when the previous six or seven psalms had just talked about how God is king. Now we're saying all the earth praises. So this reminds us of Psalm 2, which basically said similarly, after in Psalm 1 telling us you have two ways to live, but Psalm 2 is then saying, well, choose the one with the real king, right? So then this is similarly happening after the Psalms 93 and 99. The only other occurrence of serve the Lord in the Psalms is chapter 211, which I just referred to. So the 100 verse 3 directs our attention to knowing instead of acting. We're to learn something here, specifically that Yahweh is God. Yahweh is mentioned four times in five verses. The phraseology, Yahweh is God, I am God throughout the Exodus event, as I've already referred to a minute ago, as well as in Ezekiel. He made us, reminds us of creation, in which all was made good. And then in verse 5, enduring love and faithfulness again remind us of God's self-revelation to Moses in Exodus 34, which we just talked about with, um, what, Psalm 117. So, I've, uh, I've never, like, preached through the Psalms, but going to preach through the Psalms sometime, um, or even a Psalm, you know, dig into it, find find the, the words and connect them with the rest of Scripture, find if you can, you can't always find the historical connection, but find the historical connection. Um, <coughs> let's see, Bruce Waltke, top of the line Old Testament scholar, Bruce Waltke, I think, has two volumes now on the Psalms as Christian worship, actually I think there might be three volumes. And what he does in these is he'll take a psalm. Each, each book probably only covers like a dozen or so psalms. 
uh, but he spends, I don't know, 30 pages on each one. And he goes through uh, how they've been understood throughout uh, Christian history, maybe Jewish history too, I don't quite recall. And, and then uh, the historical understanding, how they've been applied, and then he does an exegesis of them also. And so, uh, great, great book for, for studying this. Since I'm talking about books like that, I'll just mention another book on the Psalms. If you want something that's on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, not bad, but good. Just really short stuff. Um, Tim Keller has a book. I would get it for you, but it's sitting underneath my microphone right there. Um, it's Daily Devotions in the Psalms. And I think, I mean Psalms. I think it's called The Songs of Jesus. Uh, very short. Uh, a portion of a psalm followed by like a one paragraph uh, comment. And he's got some good insights. Um, you know, if you can get a paragraph and you can have some good insights in it, that's pretty good. My wife and I went through that. So there's a quote there from Walter uh, Brueggemann. Obviously, our world is at the edge of insanity, and we with it. Inhumaneness is developed as a scientific enterprise. Greed is celebrated as economic advance. Power runs unbridled for destructiveness. In a world like this, our psalm is an act of sanity, whereby we may be reclothed in our rightful mind. Life is no longer self-grounded without paying for the bleeding of things. And he started, he started reading some, and he got and he, or listened to them. They are fascinated themselves with the scriptures. Um, I mean, it's amazing. I love uh, listening to uh, Bruce Walsky and learning from from him. And he just sounds like a like a gentle grandfather, you know. I mean, I don't know, seventy eighty or something, but um, it's just these these guys have saturated themselves for thirty, forty, fifty, sixty years in the in the Hebrew text. You know, that's what I'm jealous of. They know the Hebrew text. So. Thanksgiving and praise become the mode of existence that characterizes those who know that they belong to God, who know that they are not and cannot be simply self-made men and women. To live is to praise God, and to praise God is to live. Psalm 100, therefore, is an act of sanity and completeness. And then he cites Jeffrey Wainwright, who pointed out what is undoubtedly true. The world is not an easy place in which to live, doxologically. In other words, to live in a state of praising God. Walker Percy Percy makes essentially the same observation. In addressing the question of, of why most people have so much trouble living in the ordinary world, he suggests that for the most part, scientists and artists and the autonomous self have gotten rid of God. So, it's our job, it's our responsibility to, I don't want to say put them back where they belong, because that's, that's like that simple or something or easy to do them, but um, it's, it's our job to be that pipeline you know, that we are, are first saturated. point, the hymns or songs of praise offer the same instruction as Psalm 1. To be wicked is essentially to be an autonomous self, and a wicked life to obey and submit. So do we, do we live by ourselves and for ourselves, autonomously, apart from God? Um, or do we live under the reign of God, Psalm 2, who reigns the way of wisdom, Psalm 1, and, you know, we'll come back next Keller does next time. slide is about emotions in the Psalms. Uh, there's a lot of emotion in the Psalms. 
And then so the question becomes, how do we interpret that? Especially when we're looking at textual stones, like the ones that bash kids' heads against the rock. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll talk about those in just a minute. But the emotions in the Psalms, wh- wh- what do you do with them? How do, how do you interpret them? And so this is uh, something that you got, you got to work through. Bruce, uh, not Bruce, sorry, uh, Doug Stewart, uh, and his idea of how things are stereotyped, um, that approach might be slightly different than how Dorisi or somebody else might approach what to do with the imprecatory psalms, for instance. So with, uh, with Stewart's stereotypical viewpoint, um, basically you're saying, just get my problems out. Get them gone. It's not like the guy is literally wants someone's head bashed against a rock. Do you, you understand what I'm saying there? So that's that's what Stuart says. Now, that's not what everyone's going to say. Some people are going to say, no, they're really praying for that to happen. Um, Stuart says the, the uh, exception is Psalm 137. And I'm not going to jump into 137 right now, but I'm going to write it on the board, and I want someone to remind me back to that at some point, okay? So, <coughs> these these psalms that have rage, um, it's not only psalms. Numbers 16, 15, Jeremiah 18, 23, there's several places. Psalmists declare or pray for a curse on their enemies. <coughs> so, you have to wrestle with this. In my earlier class today, OT Background, we were talking about, uh, I don't know what we were talking about, but the issue of capital punishment and stuff came up. So we're talking about the justice system and, and how, how do you wrestle with what the Bible says, what do we do today, how does that apply? Well, you've got to do the same thing with Psalms. you got to do the same thing with all sorts of stuff in the Bible because it was written so long ago. So anger and rage, fear and sorrow, faith and, and mystic danger, peace, gratitude and worship, all these things from negative to positive. The thing about the Psalms is they don't hide all these emotions. Like the emotions are in there. It's just like when Job goes before God and he's demanding his day in court. You know, The friends are all saying these things. And then God actually shows up, talks to Job, doesn't give him the why, but he does bless him. You know? You can take your, your problems to God. The emotions are in, in response to real wrongs and injustices, and they often rise after sustained acts of love um, have been rejected. How can God, you know, wipe out people? Well, God has a plan. And if, if you don't get on board with it, eventually you are going to kind of get run over. I'm assuming this doesn't turn into soften the blow myself, right? So I used to say, um, you know, get on board or get destroyed. There's someone here with or without you. There's, there's no stopping the freight train. I told us I used to have a school bus, and they said, um, you know what it's like when a, a school bus um, gets hit by a train? It's like a school bus rolling over a turtle. a train going like 100 miles an hour at a mile and a half to stop or something. Like, it's not stopping for you. Like, it, it, it doesn't matter if he wants to. He can't. 
There's no way. So, anyways. Um, God's plan is coming through. And so, you know, we, we want to be part of what he's doing, be part of that pipeline of blessing, and, and not be on the other side of that. So, these emotions are expressed in prayer. Okay, so that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. It's not that um, we, we don't have the record, at least from our understanding of the Psalms, right? It's not that the record of the psalmist is faster than heavy against what as he's doing, bashing up heads against rocks, right? He's praying this to God. So we have to understand that also. It's not that he's actually in the midst of doing that. He's praying this to God. He's saying, this is a massive problem. These, these people are really weighing on us. They're, they're hemming us in on every side. There's, there's no way out. God, you've got to get the problem out. Um, I've heard of, of Christians who who pray for principals to be moved out of schools. Um, or, well, it depends on who they're praying. I think I've heard various stories. But I've, I've heard also, like, they pray to either God kill them or move them out. Because they would, like, clamp them down on, like, this gospel and whatnot. Anyways, I'm not going to make any comment on whether this was a direct cause for Christ. But anyways, they prayed, principal died. So, um, we would we do ministry at a uh, little two apartment complex. Uh, about, I don't know, two, three, three years ago, probably by now. Uh, but we were a couple years into our, our ministry there. And uh, management had a turnover, you know, which is normal in apartment complexes. But anyways, uh, it's like I could see the writing on the wall. Like, he was kicking in everybody. Like, security team was gone. The maintenance team was gone. He moved us out of this room and into this room. And that's, I felt like we were, we were getting ready to move again. And so, I mean, I prayed. some neighbors. Usually I don't pray soon enough, but then the other corollary is God sometimes takes longer than I want, right? So you add those two together, it could be a long time, right? So, um, so we had some neighbors, and they were fine at first, but eventually it was like more and more people, and people always coming and going, and then um, I'm quite positive they were, they were selling drugs out of the house, and, and this and that, and then like our, our Amazon packages started disappearing off my front porch, and then so, anyways, eventually I was like, okay, God, I've had enough of this. I'm going to, you need to do something to move them out. So, um, it was a while before they did, but, you know, they, they got moved out eventually. But, <coughs> my only point with all that is, I think that, I think that we can pray a psalm or a sermon about the things that are actually very real in our lives. If we are in Psalm 1. Sometimes people do need to be moved, right? 
and you see that you know throughout scripture if Saul is not going to uh, get in line with what God's called him to do well then you got to move on boy because we got someone else that's going to do the job so that type of thing <coughs> um so that do you have any other questions on the specifically the imprecatory those are the ones like faster as the next rock you're gonna here, here's what you're gonna have to do okay I mean I think most of you uh, if you've been in this I know some of you are almost done some of you are just starting um, but here's how this works in the Christian life if you haven't already figured this out so at first you hear stuff probably trust it, you know, it comes from a Christian person or whatever, a preacher or whatever, you probably trust it at first, and so you, you put it into your, your hat and, you know, apply it and live it however you can, um, and then as you study more and more, or you read more and more, you'll hear somebody else and they'll say something that's not quite the same, so now you got a, now you got a problem, right, so now you, now you got to wrestle with these things, and really that's where your real growth comes from, so you'll have to wrestle through uh, these issues, because a lot of times that, uh, there's not just a simplistic answer. That's why Christians have all these uh, differences, right? Not that I think we should have all the differences. I think we should get way more unified. Um, but you got to sit and talk and wrestle in order to work through that stuff. It's the same thing with the scriptures. Because um, there is, as the New Testament writers tell us, there is some hard stuff in here <coughs> that we got to dig through. And when you're dealing with 4,000 years ago, writing on top of that, well, then you got to deal with all that. Your uh, textbook actually um, deals, but not specifically with the imprecatories, but when you're looking at the genre analysis, and he talks about, um, I think on page uh, 404, Paul House talks about the positives and the negatives of looking at uh, the genre analysis for these. And for the positives, he says it, it helps uh, recognize common patterns that exist between the psalms. And it's helped identify that psalms can be used in numerous contexts of worship within the community of faith. So he does two positives. I think it's 404. No, I'm, I'm so, I'm sorry. It's a different book, I think. That's my bad. He has an Old Testament theology book. Maybe he wrote the same author that wrote, wrote that, Paul Helms. Um, and then he lists two things for negative. He says, Form analysis, the genre stuff that we're talking about, isolates the psalms from, the, from one another, losing any sense of the canonical continuity within the Psalter. So what I tried to do, all right, so if you look, this is, this is where wise, broad-spectrum studying is helpful, but then you got to bring it together somehow or figure out what you're going to do with it. So if you look at the, the back of the handout on Psalm 100 that I just talked about, so I didn't mark all of them, but I did mark the call to praise. So I'm applying what we learned, okay? The call to praise, the summons to praise, the reasons, and then the summons, right? So that's the genre analysis stuff. That's it's structured a certain way. But then in the box, I'm also looking at how it connected with Psalms 93 to 99, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, and some of the events in Exodus 34. So now I'm looking at the canonical aspect. So I'm doing both. That's what I recommend. I recommend that you to understand how these are structured, that there is some similarity in the different psalms that are the same type, if you will, um, but also how it fits in the canon. Does that make sense? So that's my recommendation. Um, how about we take a break?
Alright, so in the Psalms of Trust, these are laments that focus on the on problems. Psalms of Trust focus on the answer. So laments are problem oriented, trust are answer oriented. But both are cries from the midst of their pain. So in these what you're going to see is uh, Psalm 23 is an example of this. A psalm of trust. You know, you probably, most of you all, all know this psalm. Psalm, <clears throat> Lord is my shepherd, I shall not walk. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, we could, uh, if we had time, exegete this whole psalm. We could look at background stuff, cultural stuff, etc. But here we have... Certainty and rest in God's provision is the first three verses. Then what you're going to have is certainty and rest in God's protection for verses 4 and following. kind of feel like I skipped a slide that should have had that explained on it to you. Hard to see these way down here. I'm not sure, though. So the next portion, starting at verse 4, as indicated on the screen, is the certainty and the rest in God's protection. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what? I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We could talk about your rod and your staff. I have a picture later, later on in here. Um, but the rod and the staff were instruments used by shepherds to both discipline their sheep and to get their sheep out of a pit. That's why there's a, the hook, the hook at the end of the shepherd's staff. Um, the rod, basically a big stick, was used to beat off wolves and bears and whatever else and smack your sheep if they get out of line too, right? So these are, are God's protection. So Shepherd taking of his sheep, and the scriptures were the sheep, God's the shepherd. And so there, there is two sides to how God protects us. There, there's the discipline side, and then there's the protection from our enemies that's going on here. Next is the confidence in God's goodness, provision, and protection. <coughs> in Psalm 62, sorry, this is Psalm 62 now. For God alone, my soul awaits in silence. From him comes my salvation. So where does my salvation come? It comes from God. He alone is my rock and my salvation. There's some of those uh, images that we had way in the, the first few minutes of our class today. My rock, my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. And how long will all of you attack a man to batter him? Like a leaning wall, a tottering fence, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse, they laugh. The reality of the opposition from the outside is listed. And then he's going to have the confidence of God's goodness, provision, and protection. For God alone, O my soul, waiting in silence, for my hope is from him. So a trust psalm is putting their trust or their confidence in God's goodness, provision, God really has what's good in store. That God is providing. That God is protecting. 
The word selah, nobody really knows what it means. Um, Some people think it's a, it's a musical uh, term. Some people think it, it means like uh, amen or so be it. Um, <coughs> or, uh, or, so that would be like synonymous with amen, I guess. But uh, others think it's a, a call to worship, like for you to you know, join in. They're really not sure. What it, what it means, and there there's uh, lots of things in, in uh, Hebrew Old Testament where they're not quite sure of what it means. <clears throat> Here's a quote from D. Martin Lloyd Jones relating to what we're talking about. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, this man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing the self to talk, he starts to talk to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment. I'll speak to you. That might sound weird here at first. But, think about when you're um, feeling depressed, when you're struggling. Um, what, what are you listening to? You're listening to what yourself tells yourself, right? Yeah, I mean, that's how it is with me, right? Yeah, things aren't going well, this isn't happening. Yeah, I'm listening to what I'm telling myself. And so what he's saying is, he's saying, stop listening to yourself. Listen to God. Tell yourself what to listen to, and let that be from God, the Psalms, right? Let the Psalms speak into your life. <clears throat> I think the, the next slide has that acrostic slide that I was looking for earlier. Okay, so here are the acrostic Psalms. Remember, those are the alphabet ones. Okay. There's three, six, seven, eight, nine of them. And the size of the blob is how big the psalm is, right? So if you had to do an assignment, I mean you don't, but if you had to do and you wanted the smallest acrostic, which one would you pick? Can you see them back there? 111 or yeah, 111 or 112, one of these, right? So the chiastic psalms, okay, so I, I've said th that some are structured like this, right? The chiasms, so which ones are those? Those are these, all right? And again, I'm, I'm not going to, like, test you that you have to tell me which ones these are. <coughs> and that's from the, the logout software that gives me that pretty picture. All right, Hebrew alphabet, if you haven't seen it before for some reason. So if you haven't, just go to Psalm 119, and you'll find it in the middle of Psalm 119, because each section, I think they're eight lines each, uh, has them laid out for you, uh, and they read right to left, so it starts over here and goes across, all right? That's just for you to see the alphabet. All right, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pick up with a couple other items um, from Doug Stewart that we did not touch upon. All right, so one of them is enthronement psalms, okay? Now, if you remember in, in the first portion of our class together, when I first showed you the seven different genre types that Logos listed, I said it depends on how you define stuff as to whether it's seven or, or whatever. So Doug Stewart goes with ten, okay? So I'm just going to give you a few of these that are from him and, and maybe some that Jerusi didn't touch upon. And it's just so that you have a few more things that you can look for when you're reading the Psalms. That's all. 
Doug Stewart calls him what we just call the praisers, okay? So the next one is enthronement psalms, though. The enthronement psalms don't have certain parts, so it's not like you're looking for this, this, and this, okay? Um, but it's vocabulary. They mostly remind us that God is king. So if the psalm is about God being king, then it's maybe an enthronement psalm, okay? Enthronement, put on the throne, right? So that's what you're looking for with an enthronement psalm. Okay, it's probably why some others don't include this as part of their structure because it's, they're going to fit that somewhere else or it's going to be kind of like a miscellaneous. But the topic is going to be um, enthronement. Royal Psalms. <coughs> Royal Psalms are praises uh, God for human governance showing the importance of godly leadership. They're often messianic in nature as they point to the ultimate king, Jesus. So the royal psalms are going to point us to Jesus. So messianic psalms. So if you're reading some books on this, maybe you won't see the royal psalms listed. Maybe they'll call them messianic. The Zion psalms focus on God's presence among his people. Mount Zion is the mountain in which Jerusalem was built. Of course, the temple was built so God could be present with his people. So Zion psalms are about God being present with his people. The wisdom psalms, <coughs> so you don't really need to worry about the, the number, the letters, if you haven't figured that out, because, right, so don't worry about the G, you know, because it won't match with anything else. So the wisdom psalms, okay, so Psalm 1 is listed there. Now, what you find here is the two ways that it's X or Y, A or B, all right? So with the wisdom psalms, they're going to say, make this choice or this choice, all right? Choose, choose wisdom or be a fool, you know? Two ways that are choose. Yeah, this is the first one. <clears throat> Skip this next one. It's the, the trust psalms. We just covered that a minute ago. And then liturgies see this. Somewhat of a, a catch-all that includes psalms which are hard to categorize. So liturgy means a word spoken in worship. So he's calling it liturgy because they're, they're worshipful, but they don't really say it anywhere else. Then he lists Torah psalms. They focus on God's law, which could be also referred to as God's word. So he lists Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 as two major Torah psalms. So if you're tracking with me, then I just said Psalm 1 is a Torah psalm, but I also a minute ago said it's a wisdom psalm, right? So in this case, he's got them in two different categories. So if you're, if you're trying to be picky and put them in only one, well, yeah, that's right. So, those are some additional categories uh, that Doug Stewart lists. Okay, what I'd like to do now is I would look, like to look at the Psalms and the Gospels briefly as it pertains to primarily Psalm 22 I'm going to use as my springboard. So we've, we've looked at uh, the structure of these psalms, the genre. We've seen how, canonically speaking, they're organized in these five books, and in between each one they've got this doxology, this praise thing that connects them together. We've seen that the way to, to read them and understand them is to use 
the poetry parallelisms that we've talked about, and there's more than just the three, the synonymous, synthetic, and antithetic. There's, there's more than that, but I gave you the main ones. And so then this is a very interesting topic of study because now we're looking at how do future writers use the Psalms that were written back here? So this has relevance for us as we're trying to figure out, well, how, how do I use Psalm 1 or Psalm 10 or whatever, right? So what is the gospel? The four gospels incorporate texts from the Psalms more than from any other Old Testament book in their presentation of the gospel of Jesus. So that should tell us something right there. You might not know this, but Leviticus is used a lot in the rest of the Bible, including the New Testament. But this says that the Psalms is used more than any other Old Testament book. So if the Psalms is used by the early disciples of Jesus, the writers of Scripture, inspired writers of Scripture, what does that tell us about the importance of the Psalms? They're important, right? So no Psalm is quoted more in the Gospels than Psalm 22. I don't know if you knew that or not. Psalm 22 is a key psalm, suggesting that it shaped the passion narratives of the Synoptic Gospels. Now, many people know a line or two from Psalm 22, but usually that's all they know. The many references to the psalm in the passion narratives are used as Jesus' active fulfillment of the psalms. It appears the apostles' main purpose is to identify Jesus with the witness of David in his humiliation. Now, this is where your hermeneutics comes into play and where you got to wrestle with stuff. So you may or may not have had hermeneutics at Hukadis. You have, who else? Nobody else, just you. So, um, so you've already been taught, you know, A, B, and C, and X, Y, and Z about hermeneutics, right? Mm -hmm. So you've got some idea about it. And everybody else, you may not have taken a class on it, but hermeneutics is just trying to figure out what something means. So you've already got some idea also. I mean, you already do hermeneutics. Everybody does it, just like everybody does theology. Some are good theologians and some are bad, but everybody does theology. We all think about God, right? So this becomes a, a very interesting issue with hermeneutics because now we're dealing with what did the original writers mean when they wrote the psalm? Now, that, that already can be tricky, right? Especially if we don't have uh, a superscript, right? So we don't really know who wrote it or when they wrote it. If we know who wrote it, like we know David wrote it when he's fleeing from Absalom, well, then we're like, okay, I kind of understand what's going on. I can get the picture. He's fleeing. He's being chased by soldiers. He's his own son on top of that. You know, emotional turmoil, plus he's trying to survive, plus he's supposed to be the king. you got all this going on. Okay. If you don't have any of that, you're not sure what's going on, maybe. But then if it's quoted by somebody else and applied to their life, and specifically for Psalm 22, now we're saying Jesus quotes it, and now we're talking about fulfillment. So now you're like, okay, so when David wrote this, was he thinking about his own situation, or was he thinking about the Messiah? So now we're into, it's a hermeneutical issue, does it have one meaning? Does it have more than one meaning? Can it be David meant something? And it also pointed to a Messiah, and it's going to be fulfilled? Or can it also be Jesus fulfills part of it, and but not all of it? So this gets very complicated very quickly, okay? <clears throat> it's just like, um, uh, let's see, I think Joel had asked this to you. So, um, let's see. 
his optimal loop. Uh, nope, sorry, this is the author, but I want Act Step 2. In Act Step 2, Lou, inspired, writes what Peter, inspired, said when Peter, inspired, is quoting the prophet Joel, inspired, from hundreds of years ago. Now, if you stretch with me so far, you get a whole host of questions. What did it mean originally when it was said? What's Peter doing with it? And what's Luke doing with it? Doing with it? Now, y'all with me on this? Because technically, without doing an injustice to Peter or Joel, Luke could do something different with it by how he uses it and how he structures his optimal loop in the Book of Acts. Are y'all tracking with me on this? Okay. So yeah, this gets. I love hermeneutics, but it gets very. Uh, messy very quick. So <coughs> so what do we do with this and, and how is it going? I mean, we're not going to solve this, but here's a listing of citations of Psalms 22 and the narrative of Christ's passion. So, number one, casting lots for his garment. Okay? Uh, the first verse is the Psalm 22 verse. So, 22 verse 18. And then, that's in Mark and in John. Uh, being parched. Okay? Verse 15 of, of Psalm 22 and then in John. Agony of the stretched bones, digging holes in the... Uh, hands and the feet, um, mocking by his enemies. Okay, so these are at least five different, okay, you can get more than this probably, right? But at least five different aspects, Psalm 22 and Jesus' passion, okay? Now, I'm not going to quiz you on, on these verses here, so don't worry about that, okay? And if you're interested in it, all you got to do is Google it, okay? I pretty much guarantee you that if you Google Psalm 22 and Jesus' passion narrative, um, you'll get somebody that will give you this information, all right? Psalm 22 says, says, for the choir director, according to uh, the Deer of the Dawn, a Davidic psalm. Now, you can check in, uh, in your Bible. You can follow along on the screen, or you can follow along in your Bible. I think this is probably Holman's translation up on the, on the screen. So, we have a superscript. Okay. Now, you got to figure out uh, what Deer of the Dawn is. Maybe it's a musical term, I don't know. And we have an author, Davidic, all right, David. So then you go through here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, that's the phrase everyone knows, right? Because it's what? It's one of the seven phrases Jesus said from the cross, right? Okay. Why are you so far from my deliverance, from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. Okay? They trusted. That's showing trust in the past, right? You, you've done these things in the past, and, and for us, for our people, they cried to you and were set free. Again, that's the trust from the past, right? They trusted you and, and were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by people. This is his current problem, right? His lament. Everyone who seeks me mocks me. They sneer and they shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let, let the Lord deliver him, since he takes pleasure in him. That's what the people are saying. You took me from the womb, making me secure while at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me, because distress is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong ones of Bashan encircle me. We'd have to go check what he's talking about. There's imagery there from other passages of Scripture. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. Okay, so you've got um, 
figurative language. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, the bulk of this psalm is describing all these bad things happening, how bad a situation is, right, with all of these metaphorical terms, right? Dogs, lions, gangs. <coughs> I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves. I cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my only life, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will praise you in the congregation. You who fear Yahweh, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or detested the torment of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from him, but he listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great congregation because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. <coughs> All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. All those who go down to the depths will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and tell a people yet to be born about his righteousness, what he has done. Okay, well, let's go back for a minute. <clears throat> all right, so when we're looking at this, all right, in this Psalm 22, originally, let me just put it back on here so it's, So the first verse is what everybody knows. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But how does the psalm end?
thousand years before, right? And then Jesus is quoting it from the cross. So, thousand year time period, that is so well known that the phrase comes off his mouth. Now, I'm, I'm not even talking about fulfilling prophecies and all that stuff yet. Okay, I'm just talking just the psalm itself, right? People know the psalm. Which means they know how it ends. So, we hear it and we only think, because we don't know the psalm, we only think the first line. Because they know the whole psalm. They know how it ends. Psalm 42 is, is not just this cry of lament that you hear crying out to God from the cross. It's more deep than that. Because it ends in victory. Psalm 22 ends in praise of God. Psalm 22 ends in God being king and his name being... We're going to say towards the end of the last few verses, it said that his name was going to be proclaimed all over. The next generation, it says, will be told about the Lord in verse 30. Well, think about it. How many generations are we after Christ? We're talking about it right now. So we're talking 3,000 years after Psalm 22 was written, and we're talking about it today. <coughs> so I'm not even answering all the questions about prophecy or all the hermeneutical issues related to this. I'm just throwing some other things out to help you understand that in the culture, they probably understood that it, it wasn't only a cry for help. There's also, just like almost every psalm, and there's all the laments, how do they all end? What's the whole book about? What's the one word? Praise. That's how it ends. So, you, you can do a whole additional study on that. You can read all sorts of articles. There's, there's articles, there's books, there's whatever. My point is, <coughs> when we don't understand the psalms, when we don't know them, and when we don't understand how they're being used, So, the question, and I'm going to leave it open-ended for you to think about. So, is Jesus crying from the cross as a, a pure lament, like, my world coming undone, save me? Or is Jesus on the cross saying, <coughs> it looks like the world's coming undone, but God will be victorious? That's two different messages. Or maybe you think it's both. So, but but that's, you know, we're, we're talking about two different things here. And so when you, when you look at these psalms, that's, that's some of the stuff that I think um, you, you take away from this. You know, you repeat that, you repeat that. And, you know, that's a hermeneutical principle that goes into all sorts of other stuff. So, <coughs> all right. That's Psalm 22. Um, those next two pictures that came up uh, it's because I was going to talk about Psalm 23 then as well but we've already looked at Psalm 23 so let me just add a quick note on it um, so this is that's the rod and that's the staff Okay, so your sheep falls in the pit, you know, you can kind of pull them out if you don't weigh too much, you know, the bat. Useful for all sorts of things, right? The other, uh, the, the rod is, is good for smacking them on the rear or hitting a wolf or whatever, right? So, <coughs> we could go through this whole psalm also, 2023, Psalm 23, that, uh, you know, he makes them to lie down in green pastures, right? Um, prepares a, um, a, a dinner in the midst of my enemies. How can you have... 
dinner and drink with his enemies. Well, let, let's think about the shepherd image that's in there. Um, the shepherd, David was a shepherd, right? He's taking care of sheep, and the sheep are drinking from the pool of stream, eating the grass, not worried about this enemy that's lurking in the trees and the bushes, right? So the trees there to protect the shepherd with his rod and his staff. So I fall in a pit. Well, it's okay. My shepherd will give me. He's got that staff, right? Oh, the wolves are coming. It's okay. My shepherd's got me. He's got that rod, right? So these are some of the images. Again, I, we don't have time today to go all the way through Psalm 23. But this begins to get unpacked when you uh, look at the, the language that's used all through there. <coughs> all right. So let me take us now to... I don't know if I have Psalm 137 in here. No, I don't. Yes, I do. Oh, and actually I had a 10-minute video I was going to play for you too. So I'll try to do this quickly. And then I'll tell you about this video and we'll be done. Okay. Um, Psalm 137. So we're towards the end of our, our psalms, right? Because it only goes to one what? 150, right? So Psalm 37 was towards the end. Well, towards the end of Israel's journey, what happens? They get taken away, right? To Babylon. The exile, right? Jerusalem no more, temple destroyed, etc. Okay, well, look at look at this psalm. <coughs> this is actually, uh, if you, if you uh, Google or YouTube this, this has been made into a, a song by several different people. Bob Marley, um, somebody else, I forget who else. So, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah? Okay. So it comes from Psalm 137. People are writing music, okay, from psalms from 2,000 years ago. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. When we remembered Zion, there on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, let me just stop there for a minute. So... They're in Babylon. They're in exile. They're being mocked. They're being told, sing us one of those Hebrew songs. And they're like, how can we sing about God and about Zion and, and this temple when the temple's been destroyed and we're in a foreign land? We're in, we're in Babylon. Like, how did God let these pagan people come take us out? How did he let them take out the temple? That's what's going on here. So it says, if I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. There on the poplars we hung our harps. Uh, where are we? Down at the bottom. Daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction. Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rock. So, this is the exception that uh, Doug Stewart was referring to when he says that the imprecatory psalms are stereotyped, okay? This is his exception. And the reason that he calls this the exception is because uh, the Babylonians really did do these things to the Hebrew people, and uh, he understands.
understand the songs that he's saying the Hebrew people really are asking God to do back to the Babylonians what they've done to everybody else. And so in this case, we would say it is it's not stereotyped. The next line is, happy is he, oh, I picked up a mention of different things, but it's happy is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. I mean, that's the note that it ends up. All right? Um, the next song, Psalm 138, is a thankful heart. I will give thanks with all my heart. So this imprecatory psalm here about what has happened to God's people in Israel. So I, I leave it with you to think about a couple of things. One, that there's history in the psalm. So that, that's where we're connecting what really took place, and that's how the idea that the psalms are five books that correspond to the history of Israel. Um, some say the Pentateuch. Genesis to Deuteronomy, but it's really more than that because it covers this historical time period that is outside of the Pentateuch. Okay, um, the exile is not in those first five books. Is what I'm saying with that. So it, it's got this historical aspect. You've also got this what uh, Stuart calls the stereotypical aspect that you have to wrestle with, and the fact that they're also asking for. God's judgment on the Babylonians, which God will go ahead and judge them. He's planned to all along. So, in addition, I'm not even touching on right now, as I mentioned earlier, the color-coding circles is related to the types of parallelism going on uh, throughout that. Alright? So, does that make a little bit of a sense with Psalm 137? Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I have to shut, um, I think I have to, this might take me a second. I think I have to go off air to play it for you.